Welcome to When Movies Were Good, a laid-back discussion about all your favourite films from the silent era up until 1959. You can hear our channel's content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow all new updates and events on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please give us a thumbs up or a good review, whatever your favourite podcast channel allows for. It helps to get us in front of more people. And now, on with the show. Happy New Year, everybody. Just when you thought you'd heard The Last of Us, no, we are back with Vengeance in 2022 with a new episode of When Movies Were Good. I, of course, am Rachel here at the Resort Studios, a.k.a. my back flat, with the lovely guest star of the show, the only guest star of the show, Matt. How are you, Matt? Happy New Year. I am good. All the better to be podcasting with you, my dear. Yes, that's what we were saying. It's been a long time between drinks, so to speak, but we're glad to be here again in the resort studios recording, and we hope everybody out there had a fantastic new year, wherever you spent it, anywhere in the world. Was it cold? Was it hot? It was fairly, I don't know, humid here, I guess you could say. Yes, it was very humid. Yeah, so we're... It, it was like Manhattan in July. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, Melbourne in January is a bit like Manhattan in July, I'd say. Because I, I think Matt and I have both been in Manhattan in July. You've been there in July? Yeah, I have too. Yes. Yeah. I, I know why my unit chose that time. It's much more affordable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very sticky there. Um, but, yeah, that's actually a nice little segue into James Cagney because he was born in New York City. James Francis Cagney Jr. was born July 17th, 1899, and he is the subject of our movie Double Tonight on when movies were good. Well, his parents said they wouldn't have slept in the city that never sleeps when he was born. Yeah. <laughs> as, as I am sure I will learn in a few months with my own child. Yes, that's right. So Matt has a lot of happy things happening this year. So um, we will keep you informed of everything that's happening in that regards. Um, so we're doing the famous, the great Jimmy Cagney. Um, what's not to love about James Cagney is one of these sort of, um, jack of all trades, uh, sort of the triple threat, you know, the dancer, the actor, the singer, um, really well known for his gangster films, I guess you could say, but he also had a lot of other presence in the other disciplines of dancing and singing. And he seems to have, to an extent, been a bit of a forgotten figure, because I think a lot of people now know him as that reference they make in Faulty Towers when Basil's gotten that concussion from falling down and uh, they're trying to convince him to impersonate Jimmy Canyon rather than Hitler when he's trying to entertain some German guests. <laughs> Don't mention the war. Yeah, yeah, I, I forgot about that. Is that the one when he's walking around as Hitler in the... Oh, yeah, yeah, when he's doing the, uh, the kick, 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 kick. 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 Yeah. Yeah, well, we saw a live version of that once, and I think the guy was was doing that. Must have done Pilates. Yeah. <laughs> so James is um, known for playing sort of like tough guys in a lot of these gangster films. So The Public Enemy, which is one that we'll be doing tonight, Taxi, 1932. We've got The Roaring Twenties, 1939. And then, of course, White Heat, which I actually watched because I thought we were doing, we we're actually doing Yankee Doodle Dandy and The Public Enemy because we wanted to showcase him in different roles. And I had it in my mind. So just a quick FYI, White Heat was uh, a really interesting film. It was quite enjoyable. He's um, older in that film, made in the late 40s and definitely worth checking out. And Madonna also has a has a good song <laughs> called White Heat, which uses some of the um, the dialogue from the film. 
Um, and so, of course, in the second film that we're discussing, James actually won an Academy Award for his role in Yankee Doodle Dandy, which was 1942. A well-deserved one. It was a surprising, uh, uh, surprisingly uh, enjoyable experience. Uh, you, you wouldn't think mm. a biographical film could deliver so much because so often when you see a film that sort of directly takes on a person or an event, it, it's like they just let that... Uh, they think the interesting storyline powers the script, and but this was a very good script to accompany, to accompany a good story and a good um, uh, figure to take a dive into. Yeah, so um, his actual roots come from like theatre, and he did spend several years as a in the vaudeville circuit as a dancer and a comedian, and that sort of comes across in Yankee Doodle Dandy as well. So he was got his start in the silent era. His first major role was in 1925. And then he um, actually, Al Jolson, who's a bit of a controversial figure a bit more now just because he was um, a performer that, you know, used a certain kind of performing that's sort of frowned upon now. He actually saw James Cagney in a play and um, and that's how he beca- he went to Warner Brothers and... Uh, and that's how he actually got started. So he was signed onto a contract, you know, one of those 400 a week things. And, uh, and then from there, that's, that's how he started. And I think the public enemy was his first, his first major film. And then he went from, uh, he went from there, but he also had, um, you know, he worked with Doris Day. He, um, you know, he was retired for many years and still was acting into the early 80s. Um, he did the movie Ragtime in 1981, which I'm, I'm sure I have seen that because he did actually pass away in 1986, aged 86. So he did have a long career. He had time away and then he did a, a couple of TV things before he passed away. Love Me or Leave Me with Doris Day in 1955. He was also nominated for an Academy Award for that. But a little bit like, um, who was our friend, Olivia de Havilland? He actually, um, she sort of sued for her right to go off and do different films and and get out of her contract. He also sued Warner for a breach of contract and won in 1935. So um, that was, I mean, maybe he was one of the first men that went against one of the big studios. So, um yeah, I don't think Jack Warner was too happy with him, but um, he was very involved with the USO tours, as many of those talented stars were at the time, and he also um, served as the president of the Screen Actors Guild. So he was really, uh, really in there. Yeah, it's, uh, well, he would, of course, been most well-known for his gangster roles, like you said, but uh, he clearly had a strong empathy uh, for the like the, the the workers cause of his profession say and yeah. that's why he uh, felt a bit emotionally conflicted in Yankee Doodle Dandy because uh, again that was a story of uh, a songwriter who like was common in the time had the combined roles of actor producer and songwriter mm-hmm. and it became he basically didn't commit himself necessarily on the popular front when it came to an us versus their mentality with the producers. Yeah, it's um yeah, he does seem like he was a very sort of strong character. So if we go into his first film that we're discussing, The Public Enemy 1931. So this was actually a pre-code um all talking film. So as Matt was saying before we started the podcast tonight, like when the actors 
first started transitioning over from silent to talkies, they all spoke in a very sort of affected way. But you were saying you thought in this film he actually made it quite natural compared to some other actors he was working with. Well, the way he talks in The Public Enemy, it's so clear both in a technical audio sense but also in a character sense that he cuts right through. It's almost like you've taken one film from the early 30s when sound technology was really in its infancy and then taken a later sound film with just Kenny's parts and intersected them together. He has that extra energy um, that the everyone else on the screen because they just seem to be trying to find themselves in this new medium working. Because in a way, in, this, uh, in the early 30s, a film had almost sort of rewound the clock because it had got so far in conveying story and content mm-hmm. uh, uh, through the um, purely visual medium, uh, but it was kind of sort of shaking on its feet in the early years. Yeah, I mean, I think there was that transitional phase, and this film was directed by William A. Wellman, and he was the first uh, director to win an Academy Award for directing a film called Wings, which I haven't seen but would like to. And who else did we have in this film? Well, we had the beautiful Jean Harlow, we had Edward Woods and Joan Blondell. It was Blondell. a tragedy what happened to her. Yeah, I, I'm, um, I need to read a bit more about her life, uh, but she had that very dis- – I mean, she was the blonde bombshell, but she had a really sort of, you know – face that you couldn't forget sort of thing. She was very striking. She was a ha- very handsome woman. I think that's why uh, I think it was that striking feature that sold a lot of tickets. Yeah, that's exactly right. So everyone looked fantastic in this film. And I just couldn't believe how, like, they had travelators and stuff, like escalators. It was it, I'm, Am I getting confused between this and maybe White Heat? But in um, the public They, they enemy, did have some escalators. Yeah. Um, well, when you think of it, escalators aren't that complex a technology. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, like in only some of the most elite uh, supermarkets uh, that, that and department or, or stores department and stuff. stores that they'd have really had them. Because I actually read um, years ago uh, one of the autobiographies uh, the actual Maria von Trapp wrote, yeah. uh, talking about when they uh, went from Austria to America in the early years of World War Two. And what a shock to the system was when she saw an escalator for the first time. So that shows, yes, they were around, but it was like in a very concentrated part of the world. Yeah, I was just, I was just sort of sitting there, and I was like, oh, they, I just didn't think in 1931. And then I was thinking, oh, hang on, am I thinking of White Heat? Maybe. So this film, um, not to have too many spoilers, but I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have seen the film already. So the film relates the story of a young man's rise in the criminal underworld, and of course, uh, during the prohibition era in in urban america and i wasn't really too you know of course i knew it was you know the the ban of the of alcohol and even though we had all the speakeasies and all that sort of thing but it was really how the prohibition got started with like the temperance movement and all the different religious groups and i had no idea that so many people were sick with alcohol poisoning cirrhosis of the liver i mean no wonder (laughs) Like they actually compared to now and not that they have, you know, there are still people that, you know, drink and are, you know, lots of alcoholics around and stuff now, unfortunately, but the amount that they used to drink back then compared to even now, it's still a lot more. Well, when you just look at a, uh, like at a a dining menu of like an upper class family and the amount of uh, small doses of wine they may have gone through. And, of course, we have to remember that one alcoholic beverage isn't necessarily as strong as the other, and portions have varied 
of course, uh, like alcohol portions have increased over time as much as as much as uh, food portions. And even Churchill, like, he was known for having a glass of water laced with a tiny bit of whiskey at 11.30 in the morning. Yeah, and also, um, you know, there were issues with the medical industry because doctors prescribed a lot of alcohol-based, mm. you know, cure-alls. But, yeah, I mean, I had no idea. I just thought it was the government being... Um, you know, difficult, but at the time there was such a movement towards it because so many people were becoming really ill with all alcohol-related illnesses and also the fighting and the drunkenness and... Well, I don't think the government would have done anything about it if it were completely to their means, uh, to their own um, interests, because obviously they lost alcohol tax. Yes, that's Which right. is one of the reasons why during the Depression they brought it back. They yeah. wanted the extra revenue. Yeah. And... Kind of also, it's like when you're talking about uh, whether or not you should uh, make prostitution illegal because people are going to – that those businesses are going to occur whether or not the government allows it and all it really does is make it go really out of the hands of the law. Mm. But add to that, um, uh, yes, you do have all the uh, particular – this is one uh, area where um, women played a – this is probably what – when you think of it, in the last 200 years up until uh, women got... It's actually quite amazing, though. Long before women had the vote in most developed countries, mm. um, it was really uh, women's Christian societies that played a huge role yes. in encouraging this uh, particular piece of legislation to occur. Mm -hmm. And you understand their motivation to an extent. I mean, yes, a lot of it would, be, would have been motivated by uh, very puritanical Christian views of uh, no drinking and, like, certainly a lot of... Uh, uh, religious um, friends I've uh, I've had or have uh, I often notice they tend to be uh, less inclined towards drinking. So I guess it's part of the culture. Yeah, yeah. But beyond that, you do understand uh, its linkage with domestic violence and extremes, as well as uh, often wastage of money. I talked about this a bit mm. in the, the Titanic episode, mm. where a lot of uh, big work sites uh, pay was distributed through foremen mm. uh, to the groups of workers they were in charge of, and quite often they'd only be bringing a fraction of that home because they'd usually go to the bar afterwards yeah. and uh, be buying lots of rounds out of their pay packets before actually going home. Yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of what I found, you know, all the sort of, you know, there's some comedic films about prohibition, um, Some Like It Hot is one of them, but, um, yeah, this Look, was... Look, I think it yeah. was ridiculous yeah. um, what they what the government did and what there was a call for, but, uh, but there were just, there were extreme cases which we, as in every major political uh, ride, were were used uh, to ridiculous extremes at times. Like there was a poster I saw of how you could keep a child pure by banning drink. And I'm mm. thinking there's way, there's way more in the world that can happen besides their exposure to alcohol. Yeah, that's true. So I was also just reading that Edward Woods, who um, was actually originally cast in the lead role, and then the director saw Cagney and thought, no, he might be better. And actually going further to what you said, the reason that he decided to take Cagney on into the role is because he thought he looked more the role and could pull it off more but also because they had a much better sound equipment and sound standard in this film, they didn't need the lead actor to have such impeccable pronunciation. Well, yeah. when we see films made up to, like, maybe 33, 34, like when we looked at the film Lincoln made by D.W. Griffith, and you have the horse chase scenes, 
that didn't really need sound, which Griffith had mastered in the silent era, and they were done so well, but when you have the dialogue scenes, it's almost like they're kind of doing elocution classes towards the microphone above their head. Mm. We, we have saved the union. Yeah. That sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, well, this film is kind of interesting as well. So it basically shows, you know, a, a, a gangster's sort of like rise through the ranks during Prohibition and the trouble he and his family um, have to deal with and his friends, etc. But it's also interesting that the film actually had a prologue and an epilogue apprising the audience that the hoodlums and terrorists of the underworld must be exposed and the glamour ripped from them. It reminds me of that uh, little um, speech on the podium that uh, was made by DeMille when you, you introduced the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. It's sort of like even at the start of Michael Jackson's thriller, he has to have like a epilogue saying that he is a Jehovah's Witness and he doesn't um, condone like ghosts and ghouls and all this <laughs> this sort of stuff. But it's um, look, it's one He's of just those creating the biggest Halloween uh, music video of all time. Yeah, that's exactly right. But it, it it just was interesting that they well, I guess the film, you know, it's sort of moral tale was that you know there's a life of crime doesn't pay if you live by the sword you die by the sword so look there was some interesting um you know because they you know his character tom james cagney's character was very sort of touchy with his partner and sort of like pushing her around and things like that and the director wellman said that he he thought that that was uh, all right because he used to do that with his wife <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I just thought it was a beautifully look. It was a beautiful film. It looked great. And you just think, yeah, people rode around in cars and they, you know, went out to dinner and they, you know, I mean, life is is the same but it's very different if it makes sense. And looking uh, when most films we see are set in Prohibition, they're made so long, uh, long after the time, but... When you think of it, prohibition wasn't even fully repealed in some states when this movie was released. Yes, yeah, that's right. And there's still dry areas of the U.S. even today. Well, a guy I know who visited Salt Lake City during the 80s was uh, offered by a waitress at the year while having a meal. Like, well, she just asked, as as you would, uh, anything else I can get you? Um, It was like, could I get a beer maybe? And and she was like, Yeah, there's still, yeah, parts of Utah, parts of Texas, there are still some dry areas. Most of the states is obviously very wet now, but there's still a few dry areas. I love that scene where they're, like, uh, doing a shopping rush to all the liquor stores. Yes, and, and they had a baby's Yeah, <laughs> yeah, filling uh, it with bottles. But it also, apart from the comedy, it does make a valid point that apparently for the middle to wealthy classes, prohibition wasn't necessarily the end of their drinking career because they could usually stockpile it. Yeah. Uh, it was the poor that, uh, you know, uh, couldn't um, readily buy it. That's what it, uh, in effect, was. And so often that's what happens. Like, these puritanical laws don't think about what prat- happens in practical terms. Yeah, and then when it was politically expedient and they needed the money, then they all of a sudden that went out the window, their um, morals with regards to drinking. Yeah, and even, you know, like the president at the time, he had his own stash in the White House and, yeah, and, you know, and they were even sort of banning because obviously people were making their own moonshine and stuff and then they were banning sort of pharmacies and stuff for selling them 
the some of the ingredients that they needed to make it and then towards the end of it they're like nah the hell with it you can just buy it off us because we need the money too so well there was apparently a wine company that sold these like dried bricks of sort of wine pulp and it had these instructions on it saying like a warning label saying do not mix with water and leave to rest (laughs) for 30 days and do not this and stuff because it will produce illegal wine wink wink yes i was reading that a lot of people are just buying grapes and letting them um yeah and i mean look that's how all this stuff was discovered anyway someone left something out in the field for 30 days oh that's that tastes all right yeah one of the most horrific recipes for illegal alcohol i've ever heard of was uh, you could some actually made uh sawdust into a type of primitive alcohol because uh, you basically to an extent any uh, any biological uh, material will do, just as long as it has that natural occurring bacteria that can uh, ferment. Yeah. So they used sawdust to make this very primitive <laughs> form of alcohol, which, like, if you were, like, really poor and really desperate, you drink. Imagine a winery offering that sort of um, the sawdust winery. I guess you wouldn't call it a, uh, you wouldn't be a vinter, then you could like be a carpenter or something. Well, it seems to be a uh, it seems to be a tradition in the wine industry currently to give the impression of um, slumming at bottles. So yeah, maybe. I, so we're going to move on to uh, eleven years later for for dear James in Yankee Doodle Dandy, and I think this is what, probably one of his, if not, I would say this would be one of his favourite films. Just just looking at the film and everything, once again directed by the great Michael Curtis, who we've spoken about quite a lot. Um, and, of course, we are – it's a musical of the life story of George M. Co- well, they say Cohan. I would yeah. say Cohen, but Cohan, who produced, directed, and wrote and starred in many very patriotic, famous shows in the U.S., which were – very well needed at certain times for the collectively for the public. So he has a statue in Times Square. Yeah, he does. And I didn't actually realize that he started off like as a young child performer. I mean, he was sort of the Michael Jackson of his era, sort of just starting off performing with his family and then kept going. And this is just, I had a feeling I'd seen some colorized version of this on TV once, but I could, I'm sure I'm wrong. Well, maybe I'm just remembering may, something. Well, maybe, maybe they did colorize it at some point. I, I don't know. But one of the things I like about uh, doing this podcast is that uh, because you do certain themes, you sometimes uh, are seeing films you wouldn't have otherwise come across, and which end up being suddenly a new favourite of yours, and Yankee Doodle was definitely for me, because I honestly didn't have high hopes for it when I was thinking of the concept, because I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be one of these really patri- patriotic um uh, song and dance things which would have been fine for propaganda drives at the time but probably wouldn't have uh, passed the test of time but no it was an incredibly uh, strong story and i loved all the like i love uh, broadway theater and i think that film reminds us of something that a lot of modern musicals are missing just uh, like having the fun yeah. of, of music uh, so like i i just love hearing uh, things like uh, sweet charity and stuff that just uh, uh, can bring a bit of a a twinkle to your toes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I'm was familiar with several of the songs, even though he sort of like Cohen sort of borrowed parts of other songs in his very patriotic songs as well. And I didn't actually realize that um, James Cagney's, uh, obviously we had Walter Houston in this film, Joan Leslie, but we also had uh, Jean Cagney in this film as well. And that, that was James's sister. And I sort of saw the name and I thought, Oh, okay. So we had the cinematography by James Wong and 
a was a Warner Brothers film. And just obviously the score and songs was George M. Cohen's original pieces and then they were, um, they were adapted by other musicians as well. So um, this film is, yeah, it just follows George M. Cohen from when he was a very precocious young performer with his family, performing with the four Coens. Um, his, it sort of starts off with his birth and his dad even rushed over from where he was performing. And, uh, and sort of the names taken from uh, George Washington, but they didn't want to have Washington as a middle name. So he became uh, Michael, George Michael. <laughs> I wonder if that's where the George Michael got it, <laughs> maybe. Um, and, yeah, it just sh- shows a progression, but just how talented he was with not only Cagney playing him, um, obviously was sort of miming the piano playing and stuff too, but just what an epic person um, Cohen actually was, just writing these songs, getting these shows put on, but obviously showing his good and bad times in life with his different relationships. You know, It, it did yeah. subtly leave out the that he was married twice and the first one fell apart because of his, uh, uh, you know, extracurricular activities. <laughs> yeah, they probably, I guess it, they tried to make it very patriotic. But, look, the... The actual, this is a film that would be great to see fully restored on the big screen with surround sound and fully restored sound because it just. Maybe with yeah. a sing-along track? Exactly. I've been to sing-along Greece before and that was fun. Um, and, of course, I would love to go to something like that. But I just think to do this film justice, you can imagine groups of people getting dressed up on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday early evening and going to the pictures and seeing this film and being thoroughly entertained. And even I like the the format, like just telling it through his story. He goes to visit the president after doing a show where he's impersonating the president. I love how minimal the security was. Yeah, I know. It's just like, oh, Mr. Cohen's here. Yeah, sure, come on. <laughs> I suppose back then if he, you know, wrote to someone said, oh, they're visiting me tonight that would be fine well up until almost the 20th century you basically just needed to book an appointment uh, to petition the president for something yeah and when i had first traveled to the u.s in the 90s i mean we were allowed to we just went on a tour through the main building and they don't do that anymore since 9-11 but yeah apparently it sounds so it, it, it kind of really brings out a physical reaction in me but that they actually have written in black and white that i believe only U.S.-born um, uh, people can uh, visit the White House now, apparently. Oh, really? Oh, no. When I was there in the 90s, we went on a public tour through the, just the main area, not the, the private areas, but just yeah. through the main rooms, yeah. Well, I like most of their major uh, tourist sites at the moment, like the Statue of Liberty in New York and stuff mm. like that, you have to buy tickets ahead and often you need to book at least a week ahead of time. And to extent I end Mm. I understand it, but uh, it, it just really goes against the game yeah. for them to say outright US, U.S. born only. Yeah, I yeah. well, I guess I was one of the lucky ones who got to go in there. And, um, yeah, I've just got a memory of lining up, yeah, with a bunch of other people, and that was the opening time. And, you know, it was very quick. It was like 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something. But, oh, this is the, this room, this is this room. I mean, we didn't see – didn't go anywhere near upstairs or, like, some of the more private rooms or anything, just the main sort of – of areas where you walk straight in but yeah it was pretty good actually I'm glad I got to do that but yeah I think now everything's completely changed over there so well beyond the tourist spots in the building you probably didn't miss much like that was a time of building where they made nice public rooms and uh, kept the rest minimal yeah that's exactly right um so yeah I oh, look I just thought I thought the academy award was well deserved um and it was just such a 
it was just such a splendid film, you know? Yeah, and like uh, it's um you see you see often in different periods of time the uh, particularly when there's a desire for patriotic films to have bigger song and dance uh, and uh, like not all of the those may stand the test of time it's more they're driven by the needs of the of the present but uh, like we said uh, before this is one that's survived well so i guess that's testament to uh, both the script and the the performers i'd uh, definitely want to see that uh like you said in a big screen and uh, it, it does re- renew that uh the basic love of musical theatre. Yeah, it does. I didn't actually know that um, James Cagney had been opposed to a biopic of George Cohen because um, there was something in 1919 regarding the actors' equity strike and they were on different sides of that debate. I don't know too much about that myself. And then, of course, um, the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee that sort of brought out the worst in a lot of people. So it was actually interesting that James Cagney decided to go ahead and do the film, although um, William Cagney, who was one of the film's producers, said that it's going to be just the biggest patriotic picture that anyone's ever made. So maybe that was the thing that swayed him. It's like like when we saw Mr Smith Goes to Washington. It does uh, have a very... 1940s concept of American patriotism. Uh, even just a, your average ninth grade student can point out a lot of uh, gaps in the democracy it glorifies. But it's it's the the optimism which uh, in a lot of places uh, here and abroad that could use uh, from time to time. Yeah, and so they they have. Um, I was just thinking because some of the local theatre companies, like the big bigger musical theatre companies around here, could do that. And there was actually George M, which is the stage musical. So that was um, adapted uh, and brought to the stage in 1968. And I think actually Joel Grey uh, played him in the 1970s. Uh, Joel Grey was one of Larry's best friends. I just yeah. thought I'd put that out there. And also 1931 when. The Public Enemy came out, that was the year of Larry's birth. I just thought, you know, I'll put it out there. Well, something I've uh, got to mention in our first uh, film discussed tonight, I did love the part where Kenny uh, appears at the doorway, sorry, spoiler, in his uh, bandages, and I was thinking, like, it, it would have been great to have seen him do a, like a spoof of the mummy because that's what made me think, that's what it reminded me of, uh, like Boris Karloff was the mummy with yeah. the bandages. <laughs> Yeah, look, James Cagney, I mean, yes, he has that, you know, that that stereotypical tough guy, and I'm sure all you of his... dirty, rotting, yellow scandal, bugger, <laughs> rat, 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 Is that rat, you dirty rat? rat? Is, that... <laughs> is that him, you dirty rat, or is that somebody else? You dirty rat. Um, who... Yeah, so, I mean, he's well known for that, and look, that's probably just because he was in The Public Enemy and it just went on from there. But he was also a fantastic song and dance man. I mean, he's, you know, right up there with you know, what, Donald O'Connor and a few of these other people. So, I mean, I was very surprised. I wasn't expecting to see that. I always knew that he'd been in Yankee Doodle Dandy, but I somehow thought that he wasn't as musical as what he was. But it's not really surprising that a song and dance man would be so effective as a gangster because he has that energy, that athleticism, that uh, the ability to, like, quickly throw a glass, be like, uh, you need to charm the person there and there because that's what a gangster has to be. They're they're effectively a PR person all the time. 
And also, like, if you want to get out of going to the army, you just have to show up and do a big dance routine and, and then they're like, uh, you can stay here, sort of. But he wanted to join, well, at least in the movie, he wanted to join the army. Yeah, but they were like, uh, no. <laughs> and also, you know, I mean, look, somebody who's well-known like that as well, they'd always be a very protected soul in the army anyway, so. Even then, like, wasn't he uh, already into... Well, almost 40 by yeah, the time. Yeah, I think it was more of his age and things like that because, as we know, many famous people did actually yeah. go to the war. How much yeah, action? I, I can't imagine him yeah. actually doing a dance at the recruitment, uh, at the recruitment. Group, group yeah, whatever. although, that, you know, that might be, you know, they're like, oh, this person's crazy, so no. But, um, look, I really enjoyed these two films and there's definitely a lot of films of his I would still like to watch. White Heat's definitely worth uh, a watch as well and uh, he's an older gangster in that film and, oh, I mean, there's some great scenes in that film with a train and, you know, even the ending of that film. um, So Matt hasn't actually seen it yet but I do recommend that you watch that, that film. Well, yeah, it sounds like a good film to accidentally watch. Yeah, I yeah, I started watching it. I'm like, oh, this film's fun. I wonder how Matt likes it. Then I looked at our list and I was like, oh, I wasn't actually supposed to watch this, but I'm actually glad I did. <laughs> so um, we are going to do Greer Garson is going to be our next double. I've always loved that name, Greer, but actually it was Eileen Evelyn Greer Garson. So we're going to do Greer Garson. That's less catchy, I guess. Yeah, I know, but I just love that name, Greer. I think that's awesome. But, yeah, some people just use their middle name or or whatever sounded really good. So we were going to do Mrs. Minerva or Minerva. 1942 and Goodbye, Mr. Chips, 1939 too. I mean, she's made a lot of films, but uh, Mrs. Minerva, she won an Academy Award for and Goodbye, Mr. Chips with Robert Donut. That's a very well-known film. So, And Walter Pigeon was with her in Mrs. Minerva. So we're going to do Greer next time. Please also don't forget that we do do once a month, we do another podcast about historical, predominantly historical true crime, which is called A Glimpse of Hell. So we will be recording that episode next week. And usually the two worlds we describe don't intersect, but sometimes they do. Yeah, sometimes they do. So thank you for coming back to oh, with we us. Do a, we should do one time uh, Lana Turner in this episode, in this uh, show and Johnny Stompanato, her husband, that she may or may not have killed in Glimpse of Hell. Oh, Yeah. Actually, that's a great idea. Maybe we'll maybe we'll tee that up for like a double. Do you think I ever come up with anything other than good yeah. ideas? <laughs> of course not. And Matt will be moving to his new palatial residence next month, so we may be doing. Uh, you haven't seen the house yet. <laughs> maybe uh, don't say too much. <laughs> well, compared to the resort studios, I think it's um. But Matt's palatial residence. Um, Matt's moving to another area of Melbourne, so I think we'll be going back and forth between the resort studios and the palatial residence. Yeah, maybe hear a baby uh, crying in the background. Yes. Here and there. Yes. Yes. So you know, if you hear shh, shh in the background, that's not little juniors coming along in the middle of the year which we're all very excited about and uh yeah so we're doing a grigarson double next time um please watch out for us or listen out for us on a glimpse of hell and in the meantime as always i'm rachel i'm matthew and we're watching good movies thank you and all the best to you